Hello and welcome to the GMHBA Healthier Together podcast series. This series has been developed to assist you to master your health and well-being. Health is too hard when you try to go it alone. And we know that together we are healthier. Today on the show, we'll be discussing all things sleep with Professor Dorothy Bruck. Dorothy has a particular expertise and interest in sleep-wake behaviour, mental health and chronic fatigue. She's a professor of psychology at Victoria University, has over 70 peer-reviewed publications and is chair of the Sleep Health Foundation. Professor Dorothy Bruck, welcome to the show. Hello. Firstly and importantly, why does sleep matter? I think the first thing to realise is that sleep is a very active state. In fact, some parts of our brain use more oxygen and more glucose during sleep than uh, when you're awake. But sleep's really important both for the brain and for the body. So during sleep, uh, the brain forms new memories, makes new connections, and we find it increases people's creativity after they've slept, their problem-solving ability, they can concentrate better, and also importantly, their mood is better. Um, So they're not as irritable or grumpy um, if they've had a a reasonable night's sleep. We know also that it cleans up the, the debris that we accumulate during the day, a bit like, you know, cleaning up the office. Um, That all happens while we sleep. And when we look at the body, we find that sleep has a restorative role. We don't know exactly in what way, but we know that, uh, for example, the muscles after strength training um, develop during sleep. We know that it maintains our glucose metabolism, that it recharges all sorts of aspects of our physiology. We also know, but we're we're not quite sure in what way it increases our immunity. And there's some very interesting data about how you're more likely to get a cold. I think something like three times more likely to get a cold if you're sleep deprived over um, a number of days. How many hours of sleep should we be aiming for per night? Well, I think the first thing to realise is that there's lots of individual differences. So the span that's recommended is seven to nine hours. And some people will be much more at the seven and a half hours and some people will really need nine hours. So it is very individual and people need to sort of work it through themselves and and, uh, look a little bit at how well they're functioning from a a sleepiness or concentration point of view and uh, know when they're sleep deprived. We also know that it's important uh, to build up, to not allow yourself to build up sleep deprivation. So it's important not to every night, you know, just have the minimum amount, say, oh, seven to nine hours, I'll just go with seven hours. Because for a lot of people, that actually won't be enough. What about children and adolescents? Well, we've got some uh, interesting hours, uh, actually. Uh, Toddlers, 11 to 14, so quite a large range. Preschool, uh, 10 to 13. When we look at the primary school age children, we find they need about 9 to 11. But again, there's all sorts of individual variability. Teenagers are very interesting because from about age 14, we know they still need 14 to 17 hours. But what's important, uh, Simon, is we know that most teenagers are not getting anywhere near um, the 14 hours a night. So many of our teenagers are chronically sleep deprived. And I must say, you know, social media, our addiction to the internet has a role to play in that. So is that why teenagers often sleep for many hours on the weekends? Are they 
making up for that loss of sleep that they're not getting during the week. Exactly. They, uh, they're they sleep deprived during the week. Um, they uh, they need 14 to 17 hours. Maybe they're only getting um, 10 hours. And so they're building up a, a sleep debt and on the weekend then they're sleeping in. And you might think, oh, well, over the, you know, in the course of the seven days that they're getting what they need. But it's actually not at all good for their, their body clock and, and not at all good for their overall functioning. Because what we find is it's, um, they like have weekend jet lag. It's a bit like they're traveling to Perth every weekend. Uh, you know, they're sleeping in uh, three hours later. Then, of course, they want to go to bed uh, even later. And the crunch really comes on Monday morning when the alarm still goes off at 6.30 or 7 in time for them to get up and go to school. And yet, you know, the last two mornings they've been sleeping in till, till nearly midday. So it's definitely not a good idea. In fact, we often think that, you know, one hour extra on the weekend would be ideal. But the secret to that is not accumulating the sleep deprivation during the week. And this, this counts for adults as well as for teenagers. Many of us are not good at getting our regular sleep need on every day of the week. Is it possible to sleep too much? Well, normally we just run out of sleep. Uh, if You might notice that if you're on holiday, you know, you spend the first couple of days really catching up on sleep is the normal thing to do. And then you get into a pretty easy routine of, of hopefully getting up um, around about the same time every morning. So we do run out of our sleep drive. Sometimes there is this, uh, we talk about this concept of oversleeping. And what we're seeing here is that if people normally get up at about um, seven in the morning and say it's a weekend and they've accumulated a sleep debt, then come seven o'clock, they'll still be very tired and they'll, they'll go back to sleep, you know, roll over, pull the doona up over their head and they might sleep for another couple of hours. And we can call that oversleeping because what happens is they go into a very deep sleep because they're so sleep deprived and the body thinks, aha, I've got a couple of hours now. I'm going to push in that, that deep sleep. But of course, when they wake up, they feel very groggy. They feel worse than if they'd actually got up at seven o'clock in the morning. So we often call that oversleeping. And, you know, it doesn't make anybody feel good. It can take, you know, an hour and several cups of coffee to get yourself going again if, you're, if you've been doing that. What about the siesta? People are often jealous of other uh, cultures that take a break in the middle of the day, go home, have a nap, then start up their day again. Is, is napping during the day uh, recommended? An afternoon nap is fine. It can be actually delicious and indulgent and, uh, and, and a really good idea. The secret is to keep it really short, uh, to keep it at about 20 minutes and sometimes set the alarm for 20 or 25 minutes so you don't oversleep. Because if, you, if you're sleep deprived and you go into a longer nap, then you're going to have that deep sleep again, like what we talked about with oversleeping. So it's important to keep that afternoon nap short. And of course, if you have a long afternoon nap, it's quite likely that you're going to need to go to bed quite a lot later. Your sleep drive will be a bit compromised. So afternoon naps, good idea if you can do it, keep it short. But what we really need to uh, avoid, Simon, is what a lot of us do, and I must say I'm guilty too, is to have a little evening nap in front of the TV because um, you get your five, ten minutes, uh, maybe even a bit longer, and then you wake up and that 
sleep drive that you need to be able to go to sleep promptly when you go to bed is a bit compromised, is a bit reduced. So evening naps in front of the TV, definitely not to be recommended if you find that it then means that you're wide awake when you go to bed. Now, I've heard people train themselves or they say they've trained themselves to need less sleep. Well, I'm very sceptical of this, really, because what we find is that it's okay for the short term, and most people can cope with uh, several nights, maybe even five nights, you know, during the week of a reduced amount of sleep. The other interesting thing on that is that there are individual differences that seem to be genetically based. You know, if you're wired up to uh, cope well with sleep deprivation, for example, I cope quite well with sleep deprivation, but my husband doesn't cope with it at all. So there's lots of individual differences. But the problem is you can cope with sleep deprivation sometimes okay for a while, but then it builds up and it's what we then call partial sleep deprivation. And we find all of the the same effects from poor sleep and, and lack of sleep. We increase sleepiness during the day, we have reduced motor and cognitive performance, and we have a whole range potentially, if it goes on for a while, of, of metabolic, hormonal, immunological changes. All sorts of things in our body are not going to be working as well if we go down that partial sleep deprivation track. So the short answer is no, it's not really possible. Is it important for us to keep the same sleep and wake times on both weekdays and weekends? Yes, it's, it is pretty um, important. About one hour difference on the weekend uh, can be okay. We often talk in terms of the time you're getting up being the anchor. You know, on the weekend, you like to go out and party and stay up a little bit later. And, you know, nobody wants to stop people doing that and socialising. It's, it's very healthy. But we like to um, say, keep the morning getting up time approximately the same. Because if you don't, it's going to make your circadian rhythm which we'll talk about shortly, um, get a little bit out of whack. So it, it, is, it is a good idea to be as, as much into a routine as possible. What is the circadian rhythm? Well, circadian means 24 hours, and uh, it basically is a, is a body clock-driven um, thing. We, we actually have a, a body clock that we can locate in the very uh, centre of the brain. It's in a, a very snappy little um, part of the body called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. So you can take it out and you can say this is the body clock, and it, it drives a whole range of things, including our 24-hour circadian rhythm. So it influences when we're sleepy and alert. So, for example, we talked about that siesta. Now, we know that in the normal circadian rhythm, we do have a bit of a downtime uh, in sleepiness in the early afternoon. It's very characteristic of our circadian rhythm. We also have a downtime in, our la- in the late evening. And what we see particularly in the late evening is the rise of a hormone, what we might call a sleepiness hormone, called melatonin. And that helps us get off to sleep and helps us uh, have good quality sleep across the night. It's a hormone that likes darkness. Sometimes I call it, you know, like a, a vampire. It hates light. So in the morning, if you want to sort of try and be as bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, reduce your melatonin levels, open up your curtains nice and wide, get that light into your eyes, and that's going to help stabilise your rhythm, you know, for every morning, um, you know, like, like the anchor. 
But what's interesting, Simon, is that the circadian rhythm is really important in determining when we sleep. But there's another component that also determines when we sleep, and that's actually called the sleep drive um, or sleep pressure. And basically, after you've had a night's sleep, your sleep drive is quite low, and it just builds up across the day. So if you have a long nap in the afternoon, your sleep drive is going to be uh, reduced. And the other interesting and important thing is if you go to bed too early, your sleep drive won't yet be at an optimal level. And we do find, you know, particularly older people sometimes, sometimes especially in winter, they do go to bed a little bit too early. I know my father, for example, he thinks it's quite okay to be in bed 11 or 12 hours. (laughs) And And I said, but you know, you can't possibly be asleep all of that time. He's 89, by the way. And uh, he says, oh, no, no, I'm often awake for a few hours in the night and I just think about what I'm going to do. He doesn't see it as a problem, but he probably only needs uh, seven or eight hours sleep. Um, But some people, of course, will see that extended time of wakefulness as a real problem. And it's because their sleep drive is compromised, is reduced because they're going to bed far too early. When we have broken sleep. What's the effect of that? And is it normal? Yes, it's completely normal. And a lot of people don't realise that. We did a a study of uh, 300 people and we, we asked them about what does normal sleep look like? And most people think you just go off to sleep, normal healthy sleep. You go off to sleep, you stay asleep all night, and then you sort of emerge in the morning. And that's not the correct way of thinking about sleep. Um, Sleep is actually a series of lighter and deeper cycles of sleep. So it's like a roller coaster. So every 90 minutes, an hour and a half, we will have a period of lighter sleep. Then we'll go back into deeper sleep and back into lighter sleep again. Every 90 minutes or so, especially the deep sleep in the first couple of cycles, and then the not so much deep sleep in the subsequent cycles. So if you're going to wake up, you're more likely to wake up in the second half of the light. And I'm sure that your listeners will um, identify with that, that that's when you're most likely uh, to wake up. But when we look at that roller coaster across the night, we find that whenever a cycle has finished, we have a period of of rapid eye movement sleep when we have our most structured dreams. It's sort of associated with dreaming. And when we go into REM sleep, rapid eye movement sleep, or come out of it, we very often wake up for a short period of time. And it might only be 15 seconds. And you see it when you record people's brainwaves, but when you're actually the sleeper, you don't even realise usually that you've actually woken up. But of course, if people are really um, a bit stressed or worried about something, um, they they surface, uh, you know, at this cycle into their light sleep and their 15, 30 seconds of wake. And if they've got a lot of worries right at the surface of their brain, then they're likely to wake up and, you know, the whole cycle of the chattering mind and, you know, what am I going to do about my boss or, you know, my car that I can't afford to fix or whatever goes on like that. So it's important to realise that waking up is normal, but it's also important to realise that you have to have 
the ability to what I call self-soothe yourself to go back to sleep again fairly promptly without starting any sort of anxiety uh, um, period or, or worrying period. What about gender? Does our gender affect our sleep? Well, they have found some um, uh, sex differences. Women have been shown to sleep uh, about 20 minutes more or need about 20 minutes more a night in order to feel properly rejuvenated, um, which I, I thought was pretty interesting. But I think when you look at the whole gender difference, the individual differences across the population, I think, are much bigger than the systematic um, male-female differences. Um, so, you know, there's lots of variability, you know, among males, lots of variability among females. But when you study it sort of scientifically, we do find that 20-minute uh, difference. The other interesting thing, Simon, is that more women than men report insomnia. So more women say that they're, uh, they're poor sleepers. And we don't really know why that's the case. It's possible that uh, the hormonal cycles have something to do with that because we know that a lot of women are poorer sleepers at certain stage of their monthly cycles. We also know that menopause uh, can be a time you know, to start many years of very poor sleep and that, that's hormonally related. The other possibility is maybe maybe women just worry more. Uh, it's speculative. I, I don't know of any data that shows <laughs> that, but uh, that's another possibility. Dorothy, how can we tell if we are getting the quality of sleep that our body needs? Well, one way is to think about whether you feel particularly sleepy in the early afternoon um, because that's a real time when our circadian rhythm has a little bit of a dip. And if you're starting to feel that you really want to put your head down at the desk in the early afternoon, then you need to be asking yourself whether you're um, getting enough uh, good quality or quantity of sleep. If you wake up very sleepy with the alarm, it's not necessarily indicative that you're not getting enough sleep because some people just take quite a long time to make that transition from being asleep to being awake. It's what we call sleep inertia. And there are individual differences in, you know, some people just, the alarm goes off and they're bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, and some people take much longer. So it's better to think about how you feel once you've had your shower and you're having your breakfast um, in order to assess whether you, you're, uh, you're getting enough sleep. But of course, the big thing is to think about how you're going with your daytime functioning. How's your mood? Do you, you know, Is your mood compromised by not getting enough sleep? Maybe you're particularly grumpy or irritable with the kids or your partner. Um, is your concentration uh, lacking? And they've done uh, intricate studies with eye tracking and eye blinking and the, the length of time of eye blinking. And of course, this is really important in terms of driving. If you're finding that you're having trouble focusing on, on the other cars and uh, your eye blinks are very long, then you know that uh, that you're having you're particularly sleepy and you are at risk. Sometimes if your sleep's not particularly good, you might have more memory problems than you normally want to. Um, your decision-making might not be so good. And another thing is you might actually crave sugar. We know that when people are particularly sleep-deprived, they crave sugar because it gives them a little bit of a lift. The problem is that after about uh, 30 or 60 minutes, it actually is a bit of a downer. So <laughs> it goes up a little bit for a little while and then it takes you down. Um, so it, it's not a solution. So sugar's out. 
are there any other tips you can give us? Um, say apps or styles of music or something like that can soothe us into sleep, if you like. Sure. There are, there are many different uh, things available commercially, and it's really a question of what makes you feel relaxed. And if it's um, music, that's really good, and obviously some types of music will um, be better for some people than others. You don't want anything too stimulating. You know, I wouldn't go for loud rap or something. Um, so music can be good, but one of the dangers is whenever you're doing something that is playing to you in bed is that you can come to need it all the time. So it's like a baby needing the dummy, and then the dummy drops out in the night. And uh, in my work as a, a sleep psychologist, I've seen people who are completely addicted to needing to listen to, say, a podcast in order to get themselves off to sleep. So it's important that people learn to self-soothe themselves back to sleep. But there are some really good apps that can give them those sort of skills. If uh, if you think that sort of relaxing through breathing is uh, is going to be a good idea, there's an app, um, for example, uh, Breathe to Relax, where the, the two is the, the number two. Breathe to Relax is a really good one. If you're interested in mindfulness, um, Smiling Mind is is one app that's very popular. There are many. There, there are dozens and dozens of these sort of apps. Body Scan um, on the Smiling Mind app. I think is particularly good. So there are quite a number of these things. But what I would suggest to people to do is to listen to the app and learn the skill of relaxation sometime, say, during the evening or during the day so that they've sort of got the narration in their head. You know, if it's a body scan or a breathing app, they, they've, you know, if you do it every night for a week, you're going to have that voice in your head. So if you're trying to get off to sleep or you wake in the middle of the night and you want to get back to sleep again, you know, by relaxing more, you can replay that narration in your head rather than have to physically get the phone and replay it, maybe disturb your partner, etc. So it's all about you know, teaching the baby to sleep without the dummy, teaching the adult to sleep without having to play the app. So that's a really good way for people to still their mind if they've got that busy mind and they find themselves jumping into bed straight away and haven't unwound from the day. They're really good tip. Yes, it's certainly a good tip of what to do once you're actually in bed is to, to you know, self-soothe yourself through what you've heard. Another way to think about that when you're in bed is to change the channel. You know, if you if you wake up and you start worrying about, you know, your boss or, or your daughter or whatever, then I think it's important to say, well, this is this is an emotional thought. This is an unhelpful thought in in terms of me going to sleep. I'm going to actually think of something else. So have something that hopefully you've already thought about that you can just bring in straight away. Like think about your last holiday or your next holiday or your favourite spot in nature, you know, walking along the beach, watching the surf, or, you know, in a rainforest and a babbling brook, whatever it might be. And there, there are lots of tricks that people can bring in. So the secret is to identify when you're having emotional thoughts that are not helpful and change the channel to something that's neutral or mundane. And, uh, and that, that's very important once you're in bed. It's all about self-soothing and relaxing. The other thing, Simon, is that it's important not to jump straight into bed after you've had, you know, 
you've been, say, working on your report that you need for work or whatever, switch off the laptop and jump into bed because that's going to take you a long time to unwind. And I, I like to talk in terms of having a buffer zone for about an hour if possible. So you you know anything that could be stimulating, you know the the computer games that are in themselves very stimulating, even though they can be uh, fun and relaxing, obviously, but they're quite stimulating sort of visually and uh, and for the whole whole brain. So turn off all of those sorts of things. Do something relaxing, a warm bath. If you're um, prone to have trouble going off to sleep, a warm bath we know can be very useful. It helps the body temperature drop off quite rapidly, which is what we want uh, when we go to sleep. We've talked a little bit about melatonin, and I, I said, you know, I like to see this as a, it's like a vampire, it hates light. And so what we want during the evening is for melatonin to gradually increase um, before bed. You know, we see a nice rise a couple of hours before bed and that's exactly what you want. But if you're doing things on your computer, a normal screen has a lot of blue light and we know that blue light will suppress the hormone of melatonin. So being on your computer is very unhelpful in order to have the melatonin that will make you feel sleepy. So that's another good reason to turn off your screen about an hour before bed. People sometimes ask me, well, what about your phone, you know? Well, the answer is it depends on how bright your phone is, it depends on how long you're on it for, and how long you're on it for immediately before bed. So the ideal thing would be to find a number of other things that relax you, you know, talking talking to other people, you know, looking at a magazine, having the warm bath, even a shower is going to be helpful. Listening to some music is great as well. So, you know, thinking about that buffer zone so that you're not jumping into bed thinking, oh, well, now once I'm in bed, I can unwind. You unwind before you go to bed. Dorothy, often people put alcohol into that buffer zone. They use that to relax. And Alcohol does make us sleepy and, of course, relaxes us. But is it actually good for your sleep? Well, no. Alcohol is a bit of a double bind. It's it's a bit of a relaxant, as you've said, but it's also a bit of a stimulant. And in terms of sleep, it, it has both of those effects. And the first effect is is the sedative, the sleepy effect. So, you know, you ha- have a couple of beers and you can easily feel quite sleepy after that or a bit of whiskey or whatever you, your tipple is. But we find that in the second half of the night, your sleep will actually be much more fragmented than it otherwise um, will be. So you might notice that if you have more than just the one glass of wine with your meal, that in the second half of the night, you're going to be waking up more and you think, ah, okay, I had a little bit too much wine. It's the effect of the wine fragmenting my sleep. And what about exercising? Again, talking about that buffer zone, some people put intense periods of exercise into that buffer zone. Is that a good thing to do? No, that's definitely not a good idea. But it really depends on how intense and strenuous the exercise is. It's certainly not a good idea to go to the gym, do lots of really intense, uh, you know, strength training, whatever, and then expect to be able to go to sleep straight away or to have an invigorating basketball game and expect to come home, go to sleep straight away. You do need time to unwind. However, the the latest research where they've talked about more moderate exercise, they generally say that any exercise, 
except for the really strenuous just before bed, is actually going to be better for your sleep than no exercise at all. So the key is to keep it at a moderate level. But if that's the only time when you can do moderate exercise, be it, you know, walking the dog or doing a little bit of uh, uh, strength training in your home gym or something, then moderate exercise at any time, including relatively close to bedtime, is going to be better for your sleep and your overall health than no exercise at all. Are there foods that help us sleep better? The research that answers that question has not really been done to give us a a definitive answer. What some of the research has shown is that you, if you have a regular habit of having a milk drink or a, a cheese snack or something before you go to bed, then that habit is good for you and helpful for your sleep. But if you don't have that habit, and you're a poor sleeper, then suddenly starting having a cheese snack is actually not going to make a difference. So sleep responds very much to that sort of habit routine thing. But when they've done the studies over more long-term foods um, of, of what's going to be helpful for your sleep, but it's exactly the same as what the general health advice is. Increase your fruit and vegetables, increase your whole grain fibres, Decrease your saturated fats, have more vegetable oils rather than um, meat oils, uh, meat fats. So at least the message is consistent. What's the best period of time between your last meal and going to bed? Well, it depends on how um, heavy your last meal has been. If it's been a fairly substantial evening meal, then you should allow at least two or three hours um, before you, um, you, you go to bed. So if you could choose one thing that offered the most powerful benefit to a better night's sleep, what would it be? You should think in terms of how much sleep you need and then spend that amount of time in bed. So if you've worked out, for example, Simon, that you're a seven and a half hour a night sleeper and you've got to get up at seven in the morning, then you really should be in bed by 11.30. So that's sort of thinking through how much sleep do I need? And then staying in bed. Not not longer and not shorter is going to be the single best thing. Dorothy, is there a link between poor sleep with anxiety and depression? Yes, there certainly, there certainly is um, a link between both of those things. Sleep and depression is particularly interesting because it's actually a two-way street. So being a poor sleeper, can in itself make you more depressed, okay? But also having depression can make you a poor sleeper. So we know that it can go both ways. It's quite a strong relationship both ways. And when we look at anxiety, that's just a one-way street. We know that being anxious can give you poor sleep. Being a poor sleeper doesn't actually make you anxious. It can make you, you know, have a whole lot of mood and irritability things, but anxiety is not part of that package. But the other interesting thing in this context, um, Simon, is some very new research that's just come out this week about the risk for insomnia from a genetic point of view. And uh, there were some Dutch researchers and uh, they analysed genetic profiles of 1.3 million people. And they've been looking for the genes that 
uh, can be associated with insomnia. And they'd been looking for years in what we know to be the genes that affect sleep, and they hadn't found anything. And then, very differently, they started looking in the genes that do our emotional regulation. So regulate our our emotions, our stress and our tension, so anxiety and depression is in there. And that's where they found the network of genes that's associated with insomnia risk, in those emotionally related genes, not in the sleep-regulating genes. So I thought that was really fascinating. That's just come out this week. How about the impact of sleep on memory and and also the impact of sleep on cognitive decline? Okay, well, that the two, if I could just tease those sorts of things out. Yeah, sure. We, we know that, that poor sleep will lead to temporary, um, you know, poor memory, that, uh, that sleep, a good night's sleep is good for cleaning up the brain, forming new memories um, and, uh, and helping you to remember things the next day. But when we look at cognitive decline, so for example, uh, dementia, we find that there's a relationship between dementia and the quality of sleep, not so much the quantity, but the quality of sleep. And here, of course, we're talking often about fragmented sleep. And they found a relationship between poor sleep quality and dementia risk. Now, the important thing before people start to to worry too much about this is that it's an association doesn't necessarily mean that poor sleep causes dementia. And I don't want your listeners to start worrying about that. It is possible that being a chronically poor sleeper does lead to an increased risk of dementia. That hasn't been ruled out. But it's also possible that poor sleep can be an early indicator of dementia. So we really don't know what's happening there at this stage, but it's interesting that there's a relationship. Since we're talking about sleep and ageing as we get older, is it possible that it can be more difficult to get a refreshing night's sleep as you get older? Yes, we find that quite consistently, that older people um, have more fragmented sleep and uh, more early morning awakening and uh, they might spend longer hours awake in the morning. And, and not just my dad, who's, you know, in bed for 11 hours, but we find this more generally. And it's related to the hormone melatonin. Remember, the, the hormone that helps make us feel sleepy. And we know that as people get older, um, the hormone, um, the amplitude, the size of the secretion of the hormone reduces. So there's simply not as much around as there was when people were younger. And so that affects uh, the continuity of sleep and makes it more likely that they're going to, to wake up during the night. So that's the big factor with aging. We also know that sometimes um, older people can have reduced activity during the day. And in nursing homes, for example, we find they get a lot lower outdoor light levels. And we know that outdoor light is really good for for helping your sleep. So activity and light levels can also impact on older people having less sleep. But we've actually just done a study uh, and analysed about a 1,000 people's uh, reports about their sleep, and a subsection of that is uh, the over 65s. And we found that, sure, they're reporting more sleep fragmentation, but the older people, but they're not more worried about their sleep. 
they seem to be able to cope quite better with it. And maybe it's part of being retired and under less stress. Uh, you know, maybe there's less um, cognitive demands being made of it. So even though they say, oh, yeah, you know, I don't sleep that well, they don't report a lot of daytime impairments from that sleep, nothing that really worries them. You've been researching sleep for many years now. What are some of the most surprising things that you've discovered in in all your years of researching this? (laughs) Well, we did a a very interesting study um, that involved about uh, 10,000 young women. And what was great about this this pool of 10,000 young women is that we had data for them over 10 years. So we looked at the group of women when they were in their very early 20s and we created a subgroup where they were poor sleepers, but they had no risk of de- no depression at all, no no signs of depression. Poor sleepers, no depression, and we then looked at them nine years later, and compared them to the good sleepers. The ones who were poor sleepers were nearly five times more likely to have depression than the good sleepers. So when I talked before about depression being a two-way street with sleep, we can see, and and our study isn't the only one to find this, but um, it's the only one to find it in young women, um, is that being a chronically poor sleeper puts you at a higher risk for developing depression. So, uh, you know, that was, I think, a fairly big finding that we we found and, you know, it's been in the literature and so forth and uh, and I think a very important finding. So where can our listeners go to find out more about sleep, get their habits, their sleep habits healthier and and their routine sound? Well, Australia has a a national um, body called the Sleep Health Foundation, which uh, I'm the chair of, and we have over 70 fact sheets on our website. So if you... um, Uh, get your search engine, you search for Sleep Health Foundation, you'll find our fact sheets there and there's all sorts of information about all sorts of different sleep problems. Professor Dorothy Bruck, thank you very much for joining us on the GMHBA Healthier Together podcast. Thank you, Simon. It's a new dawn in health insurance because GMHBA are partnering with AIA Vitality to encourage us to be healthier by rewarding healthy choices. Join GMHBA V Plus with AIA Vitality to earn real rewards for health checks, exercising, even eating well. Changing how you think about health insurance for life. GMHBA and AIA Vitality. Healthier together.